Welcome to Thinking Bros. This is a new era for me. We're your favorite corner store philosophers trying to figure out life one conundrum at a time. I am Chris. And I'm Alex. And um, I am What reformed. kind of Chris are you? Huh? What kind of Chris are you? Yeah, a, a new Chris. Mm -hmm. A new, new non-black shirt Chris. So this is a, the beginning of a new era for all the consistent fans. But otherwise, in other news, today we're going to be talking about two things. First, a book called Dopamine Nation. Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Yeah, we're going to read a few passages, and then we're going to turn to um, what has been labeled the loneliest paper in philosophy by uh, people we respect very much, very bad wizards, and continue in a, in a similar, you know, content-stealing fashion. We, we do take this paper from them, so thank you very much to them. And uh, let's get started on Dopamine Nation. Dopamine Nation is by Dr. Anna Lemke. She's the medical director of Stanford Addiction Medicine. And so boring. She, she is an expert, but she wrote this book. Uh, I mean, the, the, the title is pretty self-explanatory. Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in an, the Age of Indulgence. And in it, she explains very easily, uh, accessibly to everyone, the mechanisms, the basic mechanisms behind addiction and behind pleasure and pain and, uh, you know, proposes fixes, uh, fixes to it and with some nuance but very simply and and quite eloquently it's very a very readable book and so we read two chapters or passages for today the first one uh, where she describes uh, through a metaphor of a balance the the mechanisms uh, of pain and pleasure yeah i can try to explain it it's mm -hmm. like uh is, is the word seesaw yeah so yeah if you basically imagine a, a plank balanced in the middle the more you apply pressure on the um, happiness side, on one side there's happiness, the other there's sad sadness. The more you apply pressure on the happiness side, the more you will be counterbalanced by the sa sadness part. Because <clears throat> the balance in the brain seeks a homeostasis, which is essentially just a balance between the two states. Yeah, yeah. So that, that makes sense for like all other mechanisms, right? You, you Like in your blood, you don't want to blood sugar that's too high or too low and so your your body always seeks homeostasis there's a range in which it's supposed to stay if sugar is too high your body will regulate and get it down if it's too low it'll try to get it up yeah and the thing about that i mean it's so consistent with what we've thought happiness is versus pleasure and it's essentially if you use a substance or a certain activity that will have the patterns exhibit the patterns of a an addiction with time the sadness part will be counterbalanced so much that you will need you will need to stack up the metaphor used in the book is small go like happiness and sadness goblins and gremlins right? yeah yeah gremlins and you will need more and more happiness right of course this happens for drug addiction but it also happens for any normal things in my opinion it happens with music for some people of course when it becomes addictive it happened to me with in the past where i i was listening to it because I was enjoying it at the beginning, but then it just became part of this overstimulation complex, as we as we like to call it here. And uh, you just need more and more. And at a certain point, you reach a level, maybe you can explain this, but she uses this um, example in her life as well with... Uh, Twilight. Reading, yeah, reading, which is, which is wild to, to call yourself addicted to reading. But I can certainly understand because I'm... I've I mean, with what, what do you call yourself? I, maybe it's not imaginable for you, but when, you know, 
I'm not I'm not sure I remember right, but like she has a presentation the next morning, or at least she's working the next morning, and she's up until 1 a.m. reading a book just because she can't stop herself. That's yeah. for for me. It's just usually the things that exhibit exhibit addiction patterns are mm. passive, because oh. the the point of an addiction, the point of um something that is dopamine inducing in a non healthy way is the minimization of the effort that you put in versus what you get out of it. And the thing is. Music, drugs, um, sugar, it's all uh, one, one click of a button away. It's all putting it in my mouth away. But the active process of reading seems like a, cer a certain investment. So it's hard for me to imagine to be addicted to something that is active. There, there's some activity to everything though, right? That, like to, to eat sugar, you have to drive to the store and, and buy it. It makes it easier if you're walking by sugary stuff and you just pick it up and buy it. But there's always a bit of effort, and I guess she just... Uh, I, I agree with you that, you know, when, when you have to exert, like, a cognitive effort or a physical effort to do that behavior, it seems less likely that you would develop an addiction to that. But maybe, you know, reading for her is... It's pretty easy, you know? It's right next to her to her bed, right there on her nightstand. She picks up the book, and I think we're worse... We're, like, we're not very good readers. Like, we don't read as much as readers do. We read quite a bit, but uh, it takes cognitive effort for us to, to do that still. But readers, like, they, they can just read books all day, you know? I guess, but yeah. I, I don't agree that it's even relevant to say that it takes effort for the sugar because you're still going to go to the su supermarket and you just you can just buy it by the way. Then I understand that chewing is technically an active process, but it, it's not perceived as such. You're not going to be like, oh... I am hungry, but I'm going to have to chew. She doesn't perceive reading as an active process. Again, yeah, yeah. It, may, it may be an individual difference because also when you think about these types of addictions, right? People, Some people are addicted to the gym or something like that. And sure, that can lead to injury and everything, but it seems to be on a different level than absolutely passive things. Because if you look at the worst of the worst, right? The, the most, you know, opioids, blah, blah, blah. It's extremely minimal effort, right? You put the pill in your mouth. And then you get hours of payout for that. The same thing with music, right? One click, and then you're suddenly stimulated. You're not bored anymore. You're you're happier. Whatever effect you want to get, nostalgic. And I feel like it would act differently a little bit. To if you're addicted to the gym or to reading, you're at least harnessing a certain skill while you're doing it. So anyway, perhaps dopamine-wise, it's something. nuances. And I think we'll talk a bit later later about it when we talk about the second part but just i'm not sure how clearly we uh, like we put it so there's the seesaw and you put very stimulating things on the pleasure side so that the seesaw is completely tipped to the pleasure side then your body's homeostatic activities put uh, pain gremlins i think she calls them on the pain side to get it level that's the goal always to get it level the problem comes when you when you don't well, first of all, as you mentioned, the problem comes if uh, you keep doing this, it's going to keep putting more pain gremlins, and it's going to get heavier and heavier, and you'll need more and more pleasure to counterbalance it. And then the ca uh, the catastrophe comes when you remove the pleasure. So, like, let's say for her, she she doesn't read the book anymore, then all the gremlins are there still. It, it takes a while for, for the body's homeostatic... Uh, you know, equilibrium to go back to, to, to level without the pleasure weight on the one side. And so 
all the pain gremlins are there. It's completely tipped to the pain side when you don't have the pleasure because you don't have anything, you know, pressing on the other side. And so that's when, when the problem comes. Um, the, the worst thing about this is that it's inevitable. Anything that enters a addiction pattern, it will inevitably end up with the overstimulated happiness side and therefore an unbearable sadness side that you will have to face the rebalancing of. And as soon as you, if you have this information in your hands, as soon as you perceive something that, okay, last time it took me this stimulation to get this amount of happiness, right? One point of happiness, whatever that means. This time it takes 1.5, well, 150% that simulation for the same happiness, right? Oh, I listened to a song and made me happy. Oh, now I need to re-listen to it and it has to be louder on volume to make me feel the same thing. Whoops, I've entered an addiction pattern. And the thing with that is that if you, if you know this mechanism, you know you will have to infinitely ramp it up. In the moment, it's easy to say, oh, it's just, it's just right now I'm feeling like two, right? This is always what I felt. Before the gym, especially, when I relied on music for energy, I always used to tell myself, well, tomorrow I'll sleep better. I just need this right now. I need someone to shout in my ear. And of course, tomorrow I need it at more volume. It's, it's always like that. And as soon as you enter the pattern, you have to anticipate the, the impossible situation you're putting yourself in where you're going to have to go through this you know, dramatic detox. And this has been seen in the culture, right? Dopamine detox. Oh, overstimulation, overstimulation, everything. From food, anything like natural, uh, things that in the past weren't even associated with the overstimulation, such as music. I've explained the mechanism through which I think now it's, it's more of a part of this overstimulation complex. But again, you can balance stuff. So I think the main takeaway here is the end goal of anything that enters a an addiction pattern is always they will have to do a dramatic detox where the sadness side will be extremely weighty, right? At the beginning, yeah. And if you know that, you, you have to also realize that you'll never be able to uh, sustainably augment the stimulation on the happiness side right. infinitely. That's, there's that's a the limit thing. to how loud music can be played. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. And of course, in, in second part, she, she tells you about um, this complete de desensitization, right? This is, this is kind of the end goal that will make you enter that state of, okay, I have to detox now. Because, so the way she explains it is, we have... A, Cones for in in our eyes for oh, the yeah, vision yeah. of three colors, and essentially, if you without getting really into the science of it, if you stare at green long enough, then all of the cones associated with the green color will be overstimulated, and at a certain point, they won't be able to even turn on. And then, when you stare at something white, you will see red because all of the green will be subtracted from the white because you can't see it anymore for a little bit, right? That's yeah, kind of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, this is science. Let's not get into it. But fun fact, that's why we we have all these saccadic movements, saccadic movements I of the so. eyes. It's because if we stare at one spot and don't stop, then the same cones are hit by the same light. Mm. And so we always move so different cones are responsible for the same area. And so we always see the color as, as constant. And that's why cones are orange. <laughs> right? Exactly. So, yeah, and... Um, yeah, and that's very interesting, and it also, I think it's cool for me. If if I had to think about an addiction, well, 
maybe except except for doing nothing the worst <laughs> ad addiction i've ever had is the the music because at the beginning it was always something you know beautiful and that i used for energy and then when it became overstimulating and re-listening to the three sa same songs on loop louder and louder and more and more times it made me stop enjoying music as a whole what and about food well i wouldn't say yeah well certainly yeah <laughs> it's just not as marking, just because um, maybe it was a f like a few months of a phase, but music is like... I know, also feel persistent. like it's more obvious, right, with food. With food, it's, it's, you know, it's widespread, like people have weight problems, but no one talks about music problems. Yeah, I, I just think it's... Um, it doesn't definitely plays a back seat because it can never be the leading problem. Because if you enter a, an over-stimulating over lifestyle, music will always be kind of like a... Tertiary problem, you'll always you know be struggling with the weight part or even drugs, right? There are more important actors at play, but when we talk about detox, I, w I do think that if you don't have a healthy relationship with music, I think it's a necessary factor to consider. Now, yeah, also doing nothing, even doing nothing, right? I I did feel a crippling boredom doing nothing after a while because in the beginning it feels good. No, you know what? The gaming addiction as well. Mm -hmm. Same thing, right? You wake up, you're like, oh, well, I don't know how to do anything else, but I'm certainly not going to enjoy it, but I have to do this. Like, what else am I going to do in my day? I, right? I feel like gaming addiction, though, like for us, stopped not because of like active efforts, it's just changes in lifestyle, right? I, I feel like after a certain point, it became less and less enjoyable just because <clears throat> like we, we felt like crap playing, yeah, playing games. You're saying we, but... You have to understand that it persisted for me for a year or two more than you. So, as for you, for you, you, you were never like a marathon, oh, no, no, marathon true, yeah. of gaming type of guy either. I was always like, oh, let's do 10 hours right now. I think I'm less addiction prone than you too, but... Um... I, I don't think I'm ad addiction prone. I think I'm, I'm comfort prone, which, okay. again, like, oh, right, right. real addictions, I, I've always, you know, straight away with, well, real addictions with... with physiological repercussions i would say but i'm more like oh i'm getting good at this game therefore i will only do this for the rest of my life so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In, in a way that it can also play as a benefit for me because if i find something i get better at and it's in my comfort zone that is actually useful to society but anyway that's that's for another time yeah but, so, uh, so the first um sort of counterpoint she makes i guess is is that you know your body as it did uh, bring pain gremlins on the side of pain when you had too much pleasure it can remove those pain gremlins if you remove the pleasure and and your body realizes that you don't need them anymore and so she, she talks about uh, in one passage she talks about how humans were made for a much more deprived environment that's the thing right now if you're listening to the, this podcast in all likelihood you know all your physiological needs are met uh, most of your other needs needs are met and you're you're just too comfortable like the body is not made to be this comfortable you're supposed to see a lion and panic because you could die right now and then pick berries and that's your pleasure you know unless unless you're on a library desktop computer then you then i'm are sorry then living in the hardship i'm yeah. sorry <laughs> library desktop computers are no 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 and uh i guess that that brings us to, to the second part is where she brings up the possibility of pressing on the pain side and so just as you can press on the pleasure side of the balance and your body's homeostatic response is to put pain gremlins, you can press on the pain side yourself 
and your body will be forced to put pleasure gremlins to bring you up to the pleasure side. So when you stop the painful stimulus, your default level, I guess now, or not default because it'll go back eventually, but your long-term level, at least for a bit, is, is pleasure. And in fact, the way your body is going to compensate through naturally produced endorphins is the pleasure side. Whereas what you're doing in the other side of the equation is tricking your body through stimulation you're not supposed to have access to, right? Processed sugar. Oh, here's this thing that I'm supposed to have in a very scarce and limited quantities from eating natural things like a, an apple. An apple is supposed to be rewarding, right? 22 grams of sugar. And then a bunch of fiber, a bunch of other things too. Exactly. Then you're taking this Coca-Cola, 50 grams of sugar, dr drink, drink it in what? I don't know, the span of a class? The span of a class? Yeah, a short an hour and a half class. For an, an hour, hour and a half class. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you're getting, you know, triple the pleasure. Pepsi for, diet, actually. Yeah, Pepsi diet. And we're not sponsored. And uh, instead of going and picking that apple from some high up tree and, you know, risking your life in the jungle, whatever, you know, let's not get into that. And so you're tricking your brain with something that we've only recently discovered as a humanity into thinking that you're getting the reward of three apples and you're doing this constantly, blah, 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 right? Because it's available. Yeah. Just think how, how much more rewarding it is to be barefoot, walk painfully across rocks, climb a tree with no gear on, take the apple and then eat the apple. You, you went through all that pain and now your reward is sugar and the cessation of pain. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you know, this is nothing new, but you have to realize yeah, yeah. life is about balance and your brain is actively going to contribute to that balance. There's an interesting thing about cold showers and cold exposure where they tested some physiological and some psychological outcomes of, um, of such activities, yeah. right? And if you, in your mind, while it was happening, you were telling yourself, this is good for me. You had a positive outlook on it, okay? This is good for me. I am choosing, specifically, I am choosing, I forgot the study, unfortunately, but I am choosing to be here because this will be good for me. You actually had the positive outcomes. If, if you're thinking, I want to get out and I want to get out, you're stressed and everything, it didn't have the, the same positive outcomes, which is, I mean, obviously, you know, I always say this, Therapy is just about reframing the way you see stimuli, right? Usually you're going to, from if you're an anxious person, you're going to want to see neutral stimuli as neutral and you're going to want to stop seeing them as this person doesn't like me. Imagine they have, a, I don't know, an overtime shift and they don't answer you for four hours because they're at work. You're going to interpret it as, oh, they don't like me, right? In any case, you, got, you have to do the same about stimuli in the world. Where I'm going with this is in the second part, she tells you about how if you choose to experience pain such as cold showers what else gym. the the gym right the, the th things it's, that it's are very noxious right like for your body your all your cells are hot and it's anyway yeah yeah like why would i be putting myself in a state where i can barely catch my breath and you're ripping your muscles yeah you're ripping your muscles but obviously it has countless good effects on health fitness well yeah fitness musculature so <laughs> but I, I you know before i read that i didn't even think about like oh yeah right i'm, I'm just actively sitting there and tearing my muscles right 
so so if you are to do this and induce pain in your life in a smart way right because the point of pain physiologically is to tell your brain okay something is wrong right now you have to address this problem but if your reason tells you oh this is not damaging my body right you're not spraining an ankle you're uh, tearing your biceps because you want them to become stronger this is very different and this is where you can overrule the stimulus that your body is telling you that is noxious and uh, simply interpret it better i i told this story in my blog uh, the other day but I was once stretching and it was really painful and I wanted to stop. And then I, you know, I was in this Marcus Aurelius uh, stoic stuff. And I reminded myself, wait, the pain is a signal that something is wrong. I know nothing is wrong. This is just muscle stretching pain, although it's quite intense. I just have to reframe it. Like, I'm, I, I told, I answered to my brain, hey, I know you think something is wrong, but it's not. Look, and I just, I could continue. The pain was lesser. So I reframed the pain in the moment. This is my randomized control study. Oh, okay. A trial. Trials. So yeah, inducing pain. And this is, I mean, nothing new, right? Goggins, uh, David Goggins, who we've talked about extensively in the past episodes, has always been preaching this. Now, I also think, obviously, you have to do this in a smart way. Like, for understanding this mechanism can also tell you about, even if you do this purely for the sake of feeling pain but you frame it in a good way you're gonna get the pleasure from it but i like to do it in a useful way right like david goggins is gonna go out and do an ultra marathon for how, how, like two days three days you can intensely work out on the gym for 55 minutes right and that is not only going to contribute to your muscle but also to the happiness and sadness balance in your brain Chosen sadness is good sadness, but you can also amplify it with making the things that it make you, that is making you sad or suffer through hardship actually useful. This is what I like to preach because, as we've discovered, yes, chosen sadness for its own sake is actually can be beneficial. Why do you say sadness though? Well, because that's the words that are used specifically in this metaphor in the book: happiness versus sadness, pain. Oh, pain. Okay, my bad. My bad. <laughs> So pain, uh -huh, right, uh -huh. right, 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 my bad. So yeah, cold, cold showers, physiologically good, reduces inflammation, plus very hard, therefore you'll get the endorphins after. And this is not artificial, that's the thing. Like, it, the, we don't have, in this overstimulation society, we don't have mechanisms that systematically induce discomfort, so you then get your brain's natural response in endorphins uh, and happiness. That's that's the one thing we don't have. So this is actually a good way to acquire happiness. Oh, like you take you take like a drug and it makes you be in pain and then endorphins respond. That yeah, it crazy. gives you a tummy ache to to the like after for three hours you you're gonna feel good. So that's the one thing we don't have. The yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, yeah, but uh, just one last thing. I'm not sure if you read this far because I read a bit more. I didn't read it. This was all intuition. I'm not I'm not sure. You just looked at it, x-ray vision through the book. Yeah. Um, she talks about a, a patient of hers that started, you know, cold showers. And then from cold showers, sort of the addiction mechanism started. And from cold showers, he went to longer cold showers into a cold bath in his, um, just in his bath. And then he needed to buy ice. And then after he bought ice and put it in, he, uh, you know, bought a, a dedicated tub that he could put 
cooling coils in and he could cool then it was even colder and um you know a layer of ice formed and he had to break it every time he he went in and and went colder and colder and and also uh the water when you're in a cold bath that's next to your skin begins to warm but it sort of stays there i think so you get colder if the water circulates so he bought like things to make the water circulate so you can go pretty far in that direction too so i wanted to, to hear your thoughts about that and um but she ends on a positive note though because this patient made it made it a, a social thing he made uh like cold bath parties where he he and his family he did it with his kids and he invited his neighbors and like uh they did it all together and induced positive effects which i i think like even though it sounds so much like a an addiction the patient himself was like oh now that i'm saying this this sounds like an addiction but i feel like it, it just doesn't get out of hand like like the other thing does right you know i didn't even think about this but if we go back to the kind of experience helmet episode of black mirror which we may have referenced in the past where you could put a helmet on someone and put the same one on yourself and you would experience exactly what they physically experience and remember that kind of devolved into people experiencing the unique experience of death mm, mm. right where so for anyone who hasn't watched it in the beginning it was just oh i want to know how you know a certain pain feels for someone or hook myself up to a person that is extremely happy. I'm, I don't really remember the details, but eventually it devolved into, okay, what's the one thing you can't feel multiple times or feel without it, you know, having time to enjoy it? And it was death. Having so, time to enjoy death. Well, experiencing <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so there was just a one or a few people who just started being serial killers to experience this unique thing about death. And when, when you were talking, I guess... I can definitely see how you can get addicted to pain, right? The masochism, maybe that's... The, the main takeaway as well is, and she quotes Socrates, so, you know, she's after my own heart. <laughs> Pleasure is interlinked to pain in in a yin and yang kind of way. In a To use Zen Buddhism terminology, they arise mutually. They're not opposites. It's crazy, though, that Socrates just predicted the thesis of this book by a scientist. Straight up, like line for line, he—that's what he said. Yeah, well, uh, we're not gonna get to praising Socrates because uh, you know, you know, you know, you don't want to take me down that path. But yes, <laughs> yes, Socrates. Yeah, and but as I said though, that I, maybe it doesn't get out of hand as much as pain addictions do, but there are some people, right, that are like truly addicted to the gym and in a in a way that hinders their relationships and everything. So yeah, yeah again. The yeah, main yeah. takeaway is balance, right? Mm -hmm. We've introduced a tool that isn't likely to be abused by some newcomers, right? Yesterday, I tried a cold shower. Could stay in it for like maybe 20, 25 seconds, right? I don't, I, I haven't even considered the avenue of an addiction. That's, that's the truth. But yes, that, it's a great reminder that balance is extremely important because... <laughs> it's definitely harder to be, get addicted, yeah. Sure. Maybe it, there's a certain barrier you can break through where it's actually, become, you become dependent on it because you tell yourself... Okay, well, the pleasure things, the hedonistic things are off the table right now, but at least I can hurt myself so my brain makes me feel good as a consequence. Like, I can see that happening. And it, it definitely is harder to get addicted because the addictiveness of drugs is correlated with their, uh, their time of onset of, I want to say symptoms, what is it? Effects, I guess. The, the onset of effects. So if, if you ingest drugs 
uh, you know, if you digest them, it takes a while for your body to digest and put it through your system and get it out in your body. And so those drugs are less addictive than drugs that you inject intravenously because that goes straight into the blood, from the blood in the brain, and then the effects are there, like like seconds, minutes, right? And for the, the pain homeostasis mechanism to kick in, it's not in a couple of minutes or even, well, yeah, maybe a couple of minutes, maybe tens of minutes. It, it takes longer, harder to get addicted. Right. So the main takeaway is if you have a good digestive system, you're more prone to addiction. So remember that. Yeah, and this is uh, the conclusion from this. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, doctor. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we're ready to move on <laughs> to the most legendary paper in philosophy. Now, you know, I, I was rereading it this morning and I, I told myself, well, for non-philosophers, right, for people who don't like to practice logic, I do think they're missing out on the fun. This is what I was thinking. They're missing out on a little bit of fun. And, and again, this is like, you know those um, super repressed nerds who think academic achievement is everything and wear glasses and stuff? <laughs> Great. I'm, I'm such, such so good at vivid descriptions. And so good at social stuff with yeah, yeah, people. Yeah. I just know people. <laughs> I think this would be a good outlet for them. I, I can see them getting addicted to this. No, this is not my point. <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. So, okay. Let me, let me try to introduce it in the easiest way possible, where it's digestible. Because this, this is not going to be really easy. I, th I think we can make it easy. We can try. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Neil Sinhababu writes a paper that responds to a thing called modal realism. Now, I've mentioned this before. I didn't know I was a modal realist. But essentially, it's any possibility of any world that can exist that you can think of. Where? I mean, you don't even, yeah, that is possible to think of, actually exists, right? So this is like a multiverse theory of an infinity of worlds. What do they say? They say pluriverse, right? Yeah. <laughs> that if it can be imagined, it exists. We're probably misrepresenting it a little bit, but this is the gist of it. Now, Neil responds to this theory in a very fun way where he takes the consideration of falling in love and being in a relationship with a possible, what he calls a possible girl from another universe that is possible, but obviously not the one we are living in. And some believe that this is a reductio ad absurdum of the modal realism argument. But I think, I think it's more intricate than that. I think it's it's merely a fun exploration of what it would mean. And it doesn't in any way hurt the modal realism argument. I don't think it does. Uh, he, he ends with a discussion of like the implications okay. of it, right? But Let's get to it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, sure, okay. So, well, first of all, what's the name of the paper? So the name of the paper is Possible Girls, okay? Let me read his introduction of modal realism. David Lewis famously holds that reality consists not only of our own universe, but also of countless other universes as real as our own. According to Lewis' modal realism, evil, e every possible way that a universe could be is instantiated by one of these possible worlds. Okay, So it's kind of a multiverse theory, pretty basic, whatever. <laughs> now, what Neil is after is not only finding a girl that exists in these possible worlds but it's also very committed very committed 
and diligent, but also falling in love with this girl, ensuring that she falls in love with him, entering a pretty intricate relationship where they, in a way, interact. Not causally, but interact. And, and he even ends up cheating on her, in, in a way. So this is really fun. Okay. No, no, he, he doesn't cheat on her. Right, right. She important, knows. Im- importantly, she knows. <laughs> this is like consenting cheating. Okay. So he starts like this. Okay. <laughs> this is what makes me think that this guy is pretty smart. He he knows what he's doing and he's also writing it this humorously as a diagonal exploration of what this could possibly mean. He's he's very funny. Like it's clear that he he so seriously argues for this possible girlfriend in a, in another world. But all 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 the time like I felt that he knew that like, oh, classic philosopher, lonely. That's what he was writing it for, you know? Yeah. So, good philosophical methods, useless, right? <laughs> the ability to causally interact with your partner is important to many aspects of happy romantic relationships, but not to all of them. So this is really funny. Um, it's quite pleasant to simply know that your partner loves you and appreciates being loved by you. So, okay, this is how he introduces his quest for a research of a girlfriend. The, I think that's my main problem also with it. Like, I, I take it seriously. Like, I, I'm, listen, I, I, don't, I don't think I believe in modal realism. I don't know what believing in modal realism even is, but uh, if we commit to modal realism, these worlds exist. My problem with the multiverse relationship with a person from another universe is the, the interaction, because I feel like, you know, it takes a lot more to be in a relationship with someone than, than what, what he gets here. Yeah, I've thought about this. I've thought about this. The Very Bad Wizards talks about a, a catfish relationship where a person from Indonesia is, well, is a man in his basement and he kind of catfishes you into thinking that you're in love with some woman from Indonesia that you've never met, right? Like a pen pal. <laughs> I've always felt like those relationships are sort of pathological. Well, I mean, I don't mean specifically like catfish over the internet. Obviously, that's pathological. But like an over-obsession with a person you've never interacted with physically, like you haven't haven't been in the presence of, I don't, I don't like that. Like, I don't see that as a relationship. Well, that's interesting. I, I do think mere emotional attachment can be a viable form of a relationship. Also, you know, long-distance relationships. Well, then, of course, there's the causal interaction. But just to address what you were saying, yeah, what, do you need a confirmation that they exist through the establishment of a relationship when you can physically interact and then it turns into a long-distance relationship? I think it's just... uh, There's so much more to get from a relationship. Like, you, you can argue down and say... Okay, but technically you have this, you believe that she loves you from afar and you feel loved. And okay, but there's so much more that you can get from a relationship, a real relationship. And I, I don't know, I don't think I, I don't think we're going to argue what a relationship is right now, but it, it's just, even if it is a relationship, it's a it's pretty bad one. I mean, yeah, yeah well, I, I wouldn't opt for this kind of... Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, maybe we can... Uh explore exactly what this can offer until the end and yeah. then, yeah, then yeah. we can discuss okay what are you missing it's <laughs> weird we need like we need more setup but at the same time we need to discuss the implications yeah 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 so here first of all throughout the whole paper this is this is a 30 year old man 
okay, or something. <laughs> he says specifically boy and girl. He says there is a girl that exists and she loves a boy that fits my description, right? That I felt that was disturbing. <laughs> this added to the, definitely the humor component, but the the philosophical rigor with which he approaches the problem made it a little bit worrisome because in combination with the use of the use of the word boy and girl, that made it creepy a little bit. You, you, you I, I didn't feel that actually. I, okay. But I, I can see it now you say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the question is specifically, if modal real, realism is true, so if all these worlds actually exist, although there is no spatio-temporal connection between our worlds, can I have a loving relationship with someone from another possible world? Not an actual world. Actual world meaning the one we live in. So, how is this going to happen? Quote, maybe I'll just choose the closest possible world to ours where there's only one girl like that and who wants a boy like me. So, he is going to imagine a description of a perfect girl. He is, well, I don't know, whatever, the girl of his dreams. And then, now the problem is, because this the universes that exist are infinite, now the problem is, how am I going to find her? Because I need one. I need, I need to find the one. Right? Th these universes are infinite. So And like, th that struck me as weird too. Because on, on the one hand, you're like, I'm contented with a relationship where we don't causally interact at all. But on the other, I need one girlfriend. I need to be exclusive with her. Yeah, but this, yeah, and exclusivity is another thing, but this is where I, I appreciate the rigor because he actually what, tries to make it as real as possible. You know, we mentioned, let's let's hold off what, what is insufficient in this relationship for you till the end. And mm -hmm, this guy mm -hmm. is really trying to, you know, stack the, the cards against you in a way, right? Yeah, like, yeah. He wants this to be as real as possible. So just imagine this, there are infinite universes. He is going to imagine a perfect girlfriend and he will find one that fits this description and wants to be in a reciprocal relationship. Yeah. With so, her. so at this point, she Very exists. She exists because in modal realism, she must exist. The exact yeah. description he wants in his head. But now the problem is, how is he going to find the one that wants him? Exactly. The problem exists. There are an infinity of girls that exist matching the description, and also, of course, they have to like a boy fitting his description, right? So there is no certainty that he's going to find the 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 exact one that he wants and also there's no certainty that in adjacent possible worlds there aren't boys which these girls are going to like instead of him but he wants this monogamous relationship so the fix to that is that she has to be interested by him down to the subatomic particle so she has to ha have a, such an exact interest in specifically him from specifically this world that he's living in right now our world okay so the way he's going to achieve that so at the very least right now he's restricting her interest he's making sure <laughs> that she finds him she has to love exactly him and nobody else it can be possible because then the problem is going to be yeah and how then, can i find this exactly because in modal realism wasn't once again infinite boys matching his description exist in worlds that are different but only one fitting his description down to the subatomic particle fitting our world down to the subatomic particle so how, how is this possible on lewis's functionalism <laughs> it won't be right to attribute such a complex desire to her 
unless she engages in some kind of activity that makes it clear that her desire is exactly this content. So what he's going to do is he's going to make the occupation, the daily occupation of this girl to sing about every characteristic that composes him and this world. So all she does is all day she just sings about every particle that composes him. Okay, She's immortal. Yeah, now... This is insufficient because a hundred years wouldn't be enough to narrow down the infinity of the worlds to exactly him. So she must be immortal as well. And it, it's at this point, which, like, it's so funny how seriously he takes this. He, uh, she's immortal, but she's also eternally beautiful. Eternally young and beautiful. Perhaps she's immortal with eternally youthful beauty, spending each day singing out every fact about my world that differs from hers. So already we've entered a dystopian relationship. Like this is, I can't imagine anything more horrible. Okay. But this guy is going to use this hypothetically to remedy his loneliness, essentially. Right. Uh, he starts the paper. I mean, I didn't read this, but this is funny as well. He starts the paper with like, I am a lonely philosopher and I need the, like something like that. <laughs> okay. So up to now, there are infinite worlds. He can imagine a girl. There exists a girl that matches the description he wants, that wants him specifically in his world. Yeah, so she exists, she wants exactly him, right? So already this was a challenge considering the infinity of worlds, but he's found it, okay? And this is what's, what's interesting, okay? There's, he, he starts the next uh, paragraph with, there's no reason for you to feel jealous, of course. <laughs> there are myriads of possible boys, girls, penguins, and talking don donkeys whose affections have settled upon you. You might be depressed because no actually talking donkey exists, but you can rest assured that there's a poss possible donkey who is reciting a full particle-by-particle -particle description of all the differences between our world and his. He gets especially excited about bringing out the parts that concern you. He's like, don't worry, I found this girlfriend, but you don't have to be jealous. Whatever you want, even if it's a talking donkey, he exists, right? So this can apply uh, to you as well. And this is what's interesting to me, right? Just logically. This guy's obviously, he, he's got some pretty strong logical tools. But my problem with this, and at the end he mentions, you know, the classical uh, epistemological tool of uh, all, uh, all bachelors are unmarried men, right? Just all multiverses must fulfill the following condition. All bachelors are married men. This is just logical because the logic is, we, we get the concept bachelor from naming unmarried men specifically, right? So a counterfactual can't exist. So now what bothers me here is that we call a donkey donkey something that doesn't talk. I, I thought, yeah, I thought exactly that. Right? It's not a donkey that loves you if it's a talking donkey. Exactly. It's you you can't thing. use that word. So he's like, well, he consoles us, but I can't be consoled. A talking donkey is not part of the possible world, right? Yeah, but... yeah, but I still feel lonely. No, no, but I mean... It's not, it's not part of the possible world. Okay, okay. No, but the thing is, uh, you can imagine a world where the donkey is exactly the same as it is. The same hair, luscious. The same, <laughs> the same, same number of flies flying around flying his head. Flying around <laughs> the donkey. Same uh, strength. But the only difference is vocal cords and he can talk. It's, and also it's, he's it's pretty... reci reciting every particle that I'm composed of. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it's pretty close to a donkey. You don't have to feel jealous. Uh, you've settled absolutely nothing. But uh, I, I don't agree with this as a fix. I, I think this is a problem with his paper. Disregarding all other... Problems. I mean, the, the thing is, it's not a problem with his paper. He could have just not said talking donkey and it would have been fine. But 
Like, it, it doesn't interfere with the logic of the rest of this no, paper. Yeah, realistically, that's, that, that's also a, a reason I'm bothered by it, right? Because he could have said, oh, there's also a girl for you and ended it there. But he's like, oh, there are penguins and there are talking donkeys that want exactly you. Well, no, I don't, I don't think so. But I, I guess he says talking donkey, so it's not a donkey that like we imagine. Donkeys. Yeah, but it's not merely it's not merely a talking donkey. It's it's one that you know has a consciousness and whatever. No, well because he's reciting every particle of me, so and gets excited. But maybe maybe you're you know uh, a a mechanistic thinker and you don't think he has consciousness if he's reciting the whatever. I, I think you're going too deep here. What maybe. <laughs> There's no going too deep on such a <laughs> yeah, thing because yeah, yeah, yeah. I need starting to read this paper is going. I too need deep. this, <laughs> uh, but um, maybe we can get to the end and I can read the quote about bachelors and we'll see if it actually clashes with this. Okay, so now there's another problem, right? If you guys maybe it, in your mind it's settled and he wins you over here, but there's another problem. How does he pick exactly her out? Because considering the fact that there is an infinity of such girls there's there must be a way to pick exactly one out not not her i don't mean her but there are an infinity of girls matching that exact description that we've come to for now he just needs one well he doesn't just need one he he, he wants, wants to stay to, faithful exactly he's a faithful guy good job neil so the fix to picking her out is the alphabetical stipulation and the way i understand this i mean pretty easy i i, I think i thought of you for this just because i, I feel like you're a a fan of the Library of Babel, but th this is his fix. To end up with only one girl from the ring, I can stipulate that the girl I want is the one from the world that is picked out by the set of sentences that would come first in all of these sets if if all of these sets were put in alph alphabetical order. So there, so you take a, a paper, you an infinite paper, you write down how you would identify every single world that such a girl exists in, and then you take the first one in alphabetical order, right? So it's as if you can have an infinity of futures in the Library of Babel and they're all written down and you just take the first one classified in the alphabetical order. To fix the problem of infinity, you just take the first one. Isn't that... He, he's been so non-arbitrary for now. He's been deciding everything. Isn't, isn't it arbitrary to pick out from the infinite amount, amount of, uh, number of girls this one just alphabetically? I don't, think it's, I don't think it's arbitrary just because they're all the same girl. The problem here is just that he needs one. He doesn't believe in a soulmate, in a, in a modal world soulmate. Yeah, so, so yeah, he needs one, right? The problem isn't, oh, I need this specific one. They're all this specific one. It's all the same girl. It's just he needs one. So the arbitrary process of choosing is justified in that way. Just because it's arbitrary is usually when there are multiple options at hand. But he, this is like the same option in infinity of, uh, of times. Okay, so all good. That's fixed for you. And, and the problem there was that those girls that do that exist in an infinite amount of worlds that are different, right? But since there are infinite amount of worlds, he still wants to pick one and he just picks the world that matches the description. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is not a, a perfect process, right? He even limits his, himself. He uses a prefrontal cortex to inhibit his desires. Because now he enters the realm of impossible girls. And he says, well, some might ask, why, why don't I go for impossible girls? And this is what he says. Impossible girls have some appealing features. In an impossible girl's world, it can be true and false that she kissed me. In any possible girl's world, and in my world, 
It is merely false that she kissed me. <laughs> so funny. Um, so he, he, he then says, I must leave girls of whom everything is true and false to boys with less conventional tastes than mine. That, that's because in an impo- in in the realm of impossible worlds, the the girl will and will not have tentacles, right? And will and will not have hair growing out of her teeth, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, and that's just not his cup of tea, which is, I guess is reasonable. Doesn't he specify then uh, that within the impossible, within the possibilities of you know the impossible girls, you can restrict the breaking of the rule of non-contradiction? So basically the fact that something can be true and not true to just the fact that she kissed him. They, they kissed, right? Only that they kissed can be true and not true at the same time while other things have to be true or false. Yeah, I don't know how clear that was to the listener. But you understand. I, I understand, yeah. but our job isn't to understand yeah, each yeah. other because then we'd just be uh, babbling. Uh, no reference to the library of Babel. Oh, but, um, yeah. trademark. But essentially, yeah, he says under paraconsistent logic, because nothing is logical, you can just choose that a person who has and doesn't have tentacles doesn't have tentacles. Is is that what you're trying to say? Um, not not really. I guess you you can choose. No, no, no. no, no. What I'm saying is, uh, the the illusion that he specifies and tries to to break is that, uh, within impossible worlds. Everything has to be true and not true at the same time. So th- the his possible girl is also a man at the same time. She is and she isn't a girl. Uh, other things like that. But he says we can restrict the true and false status of uh, in, in that world to just them having kissed. So, okay, in those impossible girls, uh, one of them has the attribute that she did and did not kiss him. But all other things are either true or false. So, so he can state uh, positively that she fits the description he wants her to have, and only apply the break the rule of non-contradiction for the kissing part. So she did and did not kiss him. Right. So okay, yeah, th- that's probably a really good analysis. But this is just a, li- a small like by the way defense of impossible girls, right? Like he doesn't need this. He doesn't need this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So he he leaves impossible girls for people with less conventional t- tastes than his, and. Here's more justification for why he's doing this. Prevailing attitudes towards actual and possible people differ mainly because of the prevailing opinion that actual people people are the only real people. Prevailing. <laughs> he's like, many, many believe that... Uh... <laughs> so, you know, of course, of course. When I, I read this, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not interested in entri- entering a, a relationship with a, a possible girl. But in... in, in relationships where you are less causally connected it's interesting to think how to how little you can restrict the actuality of some people with whom you may be in love so tamler in very bad wizards mentions that he fell in love with a character from brothers karamazov right you can fall in love with a movie character which not only doesn't exist but also well no ultimately doesn't exist but also can't be aware of your states or can't have a consciousness at all and, you know, to a lesser degree, maybe catfishing or uh, falling in love with someone overseas that you've never met, which might maybe even like a real person and you've causally interacted with them. But how little does it take to fall in love? How, how little could it possibly take? So I think that's interesting. Now, an interesting element he introduces is the letters, right? So 
it feels like they're not connected in a certain way, right? But because he's free to add any uh, factor he wants to this possible girl, you want to explain it? Yeah. As we said at the beginning, that's one of the first steps is that she knows everything about our world. She's taking up the infinity of her time on her world to, to be reciting facts about our world. We need her to know all the facts about our world and recite them uh, one after the other. And so if I take, if, if he takes a notebook and uh, writes her a letter uh, that he wants her to know, she will know it. Because she's, she's reciting the facts, all the facts of this world. And so, you know, at some point, uh, she'll get to the, the, the notebook and uh, recite or, you know, be conscious of what he wrote down for her. And even, even though it's not, you know, uh, they're not causally related, uh, she knows it. I spaced out, but do, do you also know that she can reply to him? You explain that because I, I, I was getting to that, but I don't see it clearly right now. Yeah, so essentially... Because, again, there's an infinity of worlds and this person is aware of everything that is happening in the world. There's a girl who, if he feels lonely and opens up a notebook and writes a note from her to himself, because she knows everything about this world, she will actually open a notebook and write those exact words in her world. Right? And this why, is why does she have to open a notebook and write them? Well, because it's a letter to him. Or, I mean, if you want, she may think them. But to She's make gonna it more think real, them, yeah. Well, to make them more real, she can just write them down. Why would she write them down? Because I mean, she knows everything about this world and she knows that it's important for him to have this note written for him. In any way, like, mm. the argument stays the same. Maybe, like, maybe I misread it. Mm -hmm. But we can extend the argument to such a thing, right? Like, I want to exchange letters with this possible girl. This is something that can happen, right? Oh, okay, okay. So are, are you saying part of the description of this girl is that she wrote that letter to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So... Because it's an infinity world, right now you can whip out a note notebook, write some exact words, uh, words, and there's a possible girl that will write those words to you because she knows everything about this world. Yeah, thinking about you specifically in this world specifically. Immortal and immortally youthful. Youthfully beautiful. So yeah, so now again, so funny. He says, there's one more issue to consider because all the other ones have been settled, right? With luck, at some point, I'll find an actual girlfriend. <laughs> And then essentially he enters this thing about I can break up with my possible girlfriend because she's kept me company when I needed it because she knows absolutely everything about this world and she knew the breakup would come so he doesn't have to be, feel guilty about this. Mm -hmm. Disturbed, man, disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> this is he also kind of uh, what's the thing where he taunts her? What's the what's an expression for taunting? Like uh, wiggling a carrot in front of her. Mm -hmm. He says she could have chosen a more permanent boyfriend. Um, from among my counterparts. It's mysterious why she still chose me. But actual girls are mysterious to me in many ways. I mean, yeah, yeah, that, that was I so funny. I get sadder and sadder about this guy, but <laughs> I have to, you know. But I mean, he doesn't taunt her. That's what she wants. She wanted him for the amount of no, time no, that she had him. I, I, I don't think it was, I don't think I wanted to use the word yeah, taunt. Yeah. I wanted to use the word flaunting because it's like he's boosting his ego. He's like, well, look, I was going to break up with her anyway. I don't know why she chose me. I mean, you know, <laughs> like I'm a cool guy, but like, you know, I fit her description to the subatomic particle level. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, anyway, very funny. Um, now, I forgot the bachelor thing. Let's see how this ends. And this is the final blow. Okay. I thought of my possible girlfriend and smiled at the thought of someone out there who loved me and desired to, 
to be loved by me. In quick succession, I realized that she knew I was thinking of her. After all, she knew every temporal part of me down to a micro-physical micro description. She knew everything I was saying and doing. I felt more motivated to act like a worthy man. My posture straightened. I came to believe that she was happy about my writing this paper, and I wrote more of it. So this is him describing the uh, effects that thinking about such a girlfriend had on him when he was doubting writing this paper. Now this, if model realism were true, which is kind of a big if, she has just had a causal relationship with him. Yeah, because as long as he well, believes that this is true, well, that's the thing. It, it's interesting. What, what's, a, what's a causal relationship, though? Does there need to be a reply right after to her? Because look, look, if, if, if two things are true, so these worlds exist, right? So modal realism is true. And, well, if, if modal realism is true, this guy has definitely figured out how to get a girlfriend, okay? He's, he's a stud. <laughs> Wanted by an infinity of girls, which is way more than anyone on this earth can say for, for himself. So, and he believes that she exists, then it is contingent upon her knowing that he exists and writing those letter letters and caring about him that his physiological states cha uh, change to being more motivated to write this paper. You see? So I think this is cool because it's not, it's a causal relationship in the sense that if modal, if, if re uh, modal realism is true, then this is ca a causal relationship. But the, the interesting thing about modal realism is that the, I think this is why this is sometimes read as a reductio ad absurdum of um, of the argument, is that it is not spatio-temporally connected and there are no causal relationship between worlds. So this is quite a conundrum. Yeah, but I mean, is it only physical? Like uh, physical causal relations? No, certainly not. Certainly not. I mean, even us, right? Uh, you could talk with someone on the phone. Well, I guess that's physical because it makes vib vibrate. But... Thoughts are physical too, right? Like they're electrical impulses. So everything is physical to a certain extent. That's what what I think. And Shh. I I think it's 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 a, it's a reach. Sure, but like there's causal connections between my dreams and my actions. Then, right? Like if I have a dream and decide to to sell all my property, then the dream caused me to. Yeah, but that's true. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. When, when yeah. You're, Giving any example from this world <laughs> to this world is not going to help you, right? Uh, I, I I think it's quite an interesting consideration because it it definitely challenges our view of what is causal and what isn't. In it's interesting of, within the scope of this paper because otherwise... <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. C certainly, certainly. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's more of a metaphysical inquiry because if you think about it, for me, causality is just, okay, in 100% of situations where the thing A didn't happen that usually leads to thing B, thing B is not going to happen, right? 100%. And then in 100% of situations where thing A happens, B happens as well. Sure, yeah. And in this sense, right, like if you restrict the infinity to girls that, I don't know, you, you from infinity, you remove all the girls that actually love him and make him aware of it. They're not going to have this effect on him of straightening his posture. But then again, right? If you do remove it from infinity, so you remove the cause, but don't make him aware of it, he's still going to have the reaction. So you would remove the causal relationship. Have I found the crack? Say that again. Say that again. So if you remove the cause, which is... So a god that lives beyond modal realism from infinity of the, these girls removes all the ones he's interested in. Yeah. But doesn't make him aware of it. Okay. 
he's still going to have the physiological reaction of being more motivated to write this paper. And then, then the causal reaction is within this world. Him thinking, he, he causes himself to straighten his back. All right, so the real causal reaction is just this guy thinking versus this guy acting. And that's every causal relationship, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that interesting, is it? Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it was a cool exploration, I'd say. It, it, it's, it's, it was fun, though. Like, it's it, fun to read. It's the first fun paper. It's the first thing I read in philosophy that I can say is fun. Like, realistically. Realistically, yeah. And it, he made money off of this, right? Presumably. Presumably. People get money from writing papers, right? I checked him out because I wanted to see if... Yeah, I wanted to see if his face matches the disturbance level of of a person who would write that. Now, my my diagnosis, I'm not going to say, because obviously when this is going to be extremely popular and my words are going to be taken out of context, this won't be favorable for me. But <laughs> I made the analysis, and essentially in his Twitter description, I think he has his two main achievements as this paper and another paper. So he says, Neil, blah, 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 writer of possible girls and something else. Mm -hmm. So this was big for him. This is the interesting thing. Uh, I mean... Good for him. It's a good paper, I think. It's a good paper. You, you know what's interesting? A lot of metaphysics pretends to operate on a high level, but doesn't do much more than this guy did. Than this does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right? He proved something that essentially if you lose, if you lose, if you use the logic to which humans have access to, if you use every, the you know, metaphysical theory, you can come up with some pretty fun things like free will doesn't exist. Mm. Right. Oh, what an interesting exploration, is it? <laughs> if, if I want a donut, I can get a donut, and maybe some things will happen that prevent me from getting it, but whatever. <laughs> so, um, free will, possible girls, and much more on next... So, <laughs> what's, what's the figure that I'll <laughs> How are we still doing it? What, what are, yeah, what are we doing? <laughs> this is a... This was fun rating. Figured it out rating. Uh, dude, I think 10. If 9... Mm, Nine or ten. Yeah, I want to say ten because dopamine was straightforward, and this guy, you know what? Nine, yeah, because because I feel like there's some parts we don't like exactly nail down. Certainly, from this I, I paper. think I think the I didn't get to the bachelor part. I think the talking donkey and all bachelor <laughs> all bachelors necessarily being but, unmarried but men. That's because that's because of it's it is by definition that. What was your problem? And with don that? donkeys as well. My my problem is that. Bachelor no, being he, a married man. It's a new thing. It's a talking donkey. Right. So the thing to you use to describe it is a talking donkey. Exactly. So it's not yeah. a it's not a donkey donkey that loves you. It's in that possible world a talking donkey that loves you. I'd I'd, I'd then still then, stick with a nine. But then again, like if you hmm. extend possible to things that aren't even imaginable to us. It's imaginable. Well, isn't it? Yeah, but then it's also consistent with him saying she's immortal and then talking right. donkeys. Right. But then I just don't feel like it's that much of a leap to say that it's also possible for the rules of logic not to apply to those worlds. I don't think it's that, that that's impossible to have something that is that and not that. And I, I don't know, I guess he considers that. Yeah, I guess I don't know how to think about this, but yeah, those are just the two possibilities. Whether it's either in the the multiverse the rule of non-contradiction holds or it doesn't but ah i think that was interesting in whatever i'm not going to get into it in in the intro to logic class mm. so interesting to get like deep and to say the assumption of uh 
of this logical system we are using, which is like basic logic, is that uh, non uh, is the law of non contradiction. Something can't be true and false at the same time. I think that's so interesting that you know people create whole systems where that's not true, and I don't even know how you navigate those. Yeah, I think Alan Watts says something pretty interesting about this. He says we always say, "Oh, we anthropomorphize, uh, you know, gods, blah blah." We make this mistake, but everything is a human state of consciousness, right? Everything is just a pattern of activation of our neurons. So even E equals MC two, and the laws of logic are anthropomorphized because they are human in nature. They are only they only exist as far as they are perceived by humans, right? So I I I don't know, like. I'm a big fan of logic, but I don't know why people say that the one thing that is invariable across everything, I disagree with Descartes about this, I disagree with blah, 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 is logic, right? Like, in dreams, it is true that twice two makes four, right? The, the, the one, I don't know, they hold this to a higher standard and uh, something having te tentacles and not having tentacles is, some, is somehow much more unimaginable than someone who's immortal. It it is. Just think about it. Like I can imagine clearly a person that that's immortal that just never dies. Okay, I can I can imagine it. No, but like I, but, I don't but know. Imagine can... no, but imagine in your head. Like okay, I can. While I was reading the paper, right, I imagined a, a eternally youthful girl. I can imagine that. We can both imagine that. Then I just keep her for the rest of time and beyond time uh, to infinity. You know, I I have some resources to 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 go with. When I imagine someone that has and doesn't have tentacles, I imagine tentacles or I imagine not tentacles. I, I can't, I can't imagine both. Right, Schrodinger, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. not going to, you know, just like pile on to my, my own argument and just say, no, I don't see the distinction. Mm -hmm. I definitely see the distinction. It's just, it just doesn't feel like, okay, humans can't imagine the fourth dimension. Therefore, it's there's something different about the fourth than it, there is about one, two, and three. I don't agree with that. Mm. I definitely can't like visually imagine it in my head. Mathematicians probably can, like abstract mathematicians. Anyway, mm. we never usually do this, right? Go go talk after the after the rating. How rating. dare That's, we? How dare we? So thank you for listening. Visit us at thinkingbros.com or contact us at thinkingbros at gmail.com if you want to leave some thoughts or all thoughts, whatever. And we'll see you next week. See ya. See ya.